You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week, and with me are Will Doran, Colin Campbell, Lynn Bonner, and Craig Jarvis. Uh, we'll talk about fallout from the Senate budget, uh, including uh, some cuts that uh, uh, have been highlighted in the days since the Senate passed its own budget. Uh, we'll talk about uh, Governor Cooper going to D.C. and what he did there. Uh, and we'll talk about a couple of fact checks that PolitiFact has done, uh, including one on uh, a claim that there are thousands of uh, people over 110 years old who are voting. Uh, so stay tuned for all that. But we're going to start with a bill that the House passed uh, yesterday, uh, Wednesday, as we're recording this on Thursday, uh, to change the uh, uh, the standard for when uh, offenders, accused offenders, uh, go to juvenile court and when they go to adult court. Uh, so right now, 16 and 17 year olds are automatically prosecuted as uh, adults. And uh, Colin, the uh, what would the uh, what would the bill do to change that? Yeah. So the bill, um, as it's uh, passed the House in a pretty overwhelming vote on Wednesday, uh, would change the uh, sort of automatic prosecution so that it, particularly for low level. Uh, nonviolent crime, misdemeanors and the like, uh, 16 to 17-year-olds would be treated as juveniles. Of course, the uh, judge and prosecutor and even to some degree the victims would have the option to seek it getting bumped up if it's uh, something they think merits uh, a prosecution in adult court. Uh, North Carolina is the last uh, state in the country that still automatically process uh, prosecutes 16 and 17-year-olds um, in adult courts. Um, so there's a sort of movement to do that uh, here. It's happened a number of times over the years, particularly in the House side has uh, voted in support of uh, making the change. Uh, the Senate, uh, up until recently, has not gotten on board. Some law enforcement and prosecutors groups are only getting on board this proposal this year. Uh, prior to this, they had, had been opponents and, and part of the why, why the bill had, had never gotten very far uh, prior to this year. Uh, there's currently a, a proposal going through the Senate as part of the Senate budget uh, that would start the change in 2020. So slightly different uh, terms than what the House is proposing. So things will get worked out now that uh, it's going into the, the budget process. Uh, and they've got to work out as well the uh, funding that goes into this. You're going to need more prosecutors. You're going to need more beds in juvenile uh, correctional facilities. Uh, and all that sort of still has to be worked out. Pretty overwhelming, uh, but what was some of the objections that were raised in the House debate? Yeah, one of the objections was the cost side of things. Um, uh, a couple of Republicans, and, and really there were only eight Republicans that had voted against it, most of the party, and that all of the Democrats were uh, on board with the proposal. But there were concerns about cost, that um, there wasn't necessarily a plan for how this is going to be funded in the budget. Uh, the sponsor of the bill is Representative Chuck McGrady, who is a budget writer, who was sort of assuring uh, folks in his caucus that, you know, we're we're working on this. We've, we're getting funding for it in the budget, and this is a year where we, we can indeed afford the initial extra cost of it. Uh, the other concern was uh, from uh, Representative Larry Pittman that uh, he felt like this is uh, being soft on crime by uh, allowing folks to avoid uh, adult prosecution at, at these ages in a lot of cases. And, and there were a variety of hypotheticals raised uh, as a part of this debate, and it got kind of quirky. The uh, folks in support of the bill were referring to all of these sort of hijinks that teenagers get up to that could uh, currently be prosecuted in adult court, most notably the idea of uh, throwing water balloons filled with mayonnaise, which is 
not something I or my friends did at age 15 or 16, but... Those crazy really, kids. It's yeah. kind of hard to fill a water balloon up with mayonnaise. Yeah, I don't really know how you would do that, but evidently that was an example that kept coming up in this debate. It's a squeeze so I, bottle instead yeah, of one of those glass jars. I guess some folks have been doing it that way, but... Um, and then on the opposite side, there were all these uh, very detailed hypotheticals about violent crimes that they were worried would be not prosecuted in adult court uh, if this bill passes. Uh, most notably, uh, Representative Jeff Collins' rather odd uh, suggestion that uh, perhaps someone who's uh, mother or grandmother is upset about their pension, that that person, that teenager, uh, might take it out on uh, State Treasurer Dale Falwell by going to his office and stabbing him. Um, I'm not really sure how that uh, particular hypothetical came up. Uh, I don't know that Dale Falwell has been receiving any threats or that anyone's really uh, out to get him, but uh, that was one of the examples of a possible violent crime. Uh, Representative Chuck McGrady, who is or trying to beat back some of these hypotheticals, was basically saying, you know, look, the uh, most violent crimes in, in this bill would still be prosecuted in adult court, and those that might fall into the gap, you, the judge would still have discretion to uh, bump it up out of juvenile court if, if that were merited. So that ended up being sort of the flashpoints on there. But again, only uh, eight House members voted no uh, by the time the vote was called. Well, you've looked into the costs uh, in yeah. the past for PolitiFact. Um, yeah, the cost I- issue is an interesting one and definitely a major area of contention. Um, we looked into a statement from Representative Dwayne Hall, who is a Raleigh Democrat and one of the co-sponsors of this bill, um, he said that it would save uh, literally tens of millions of dollars for the state. We ruled that mostly true. Um, there had actually been a study in 2009 was the most recent time that uh, North Carolina's looked into this, and they found then that if we did raise the age that it would require around, I think it was $49 million annually for the first couple of years to basically uh, – you know, build build new facilities to, hi- to to house the juvenile people who were no longer in, uh, you know, adult prisons, and to hire a, around I think three or four or five hundred new uh, staff, you know, guards and counselors and things like that. Um, so creating some jobs would be a part of that uh, spending, but then in the long term, it would lead to over a hundred million dollars a year in savings, uh, both for the kind of a combination of savings to the state government by having fewer people in prison, and then also savings to society at large. Uh, you know, people able to get better jobs because they don't have criminal records, so they're paying more in taxes. They're not taking as much in, you know, uh, state benefits or things like that. Um, so in the long term, yeah, it would be a huge cost saver for the state and kind of uh, society at large. But in, in the short in the term, term, they have to build a prison, right? Right. So. Yeah. I don't think anyone would argue that there aren't short-term costs associated with it. Um, of course, it's good news for people who are trying to get a job as a, a guard or a counselor or, uh, you know, whatever, uh, you know, different types of jobs that these juvenile facilities require. Yeah. And I think prosecution, uh, they need more prosecutors for this because, uh, as it was described, if you're prosecuting someone in uh, juvenile court, it often takes more time uh, because there are you know, fewer plea deals and things that sort of speed up the process in adult court. So that's something they've got to uh, be concerned about. And there it was some concern, I think, from some district attorneys who are uh, worried about the additional workload and uh, whether the state would actually fund the additional uh, prosecutors they needed. Yeah, well, I think a lot of counties have, you know, individual DAs who only do juvenile court or mostly do juvenile court because it is kind of a specialty you know it's it's not the same sort of proceeding as adult court so yeah you do you'd have to kind of 
put some more attention on it. And I, I will say, too, on the issue of the violent crimes, we looked into that uh, for another PolitiFact that I wrote and found that only 2 or 3% of the uh, crimes that 16- and 17-year-olds get charged with are violent felonies. Um, 97, 98% are misdemeanors or are low-level felonies, which might be, you know, you know, breaking and entering or, you know, having drugs at school or something like that. Um, uh, but yeah, a very, a very small amount are those violent ones that uh, nevertheless cause so much commotion in the legislature. And somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the um, uh, Senate budget is different because it, uh, it only would do a make a change for misdemeanors. It was only put misdemeanors into uh, right. uh, juvenile court. That's right. Um, the Senate budget writer said that they wanted to see how the misdemeanors worked first and then phase it in. Um, but that's going to be uh, one of the big lines uh, that needs to be that needs to be negotiated when this all you know. Assume, assuming that they do it this year uh, when they decide uh, to um, to raise the age. Also, that and the money. Okay. And, uh, of course, one of the things that's putting pressure on them is that, uh, as I think Colin said, the, there's, we're the last state, or we would be the last state. Yeah, I think it was uh, a New York state that was the next to last, right. and they went just this year. Yeah, so they're going to have a phase in as well, but that, that law's been signed. And Representative Pittman had a memorable quote about uh, basically just, I'll be paraphrasing it, but basically just because 49 other states have done it, we shouldn't be lemmings jumping, lemmings off, jumping off the cliff. cliff yeah, which it. is, you know, so. uh, not, not surprising rhetoric for him. I mean, we think we would expect Larry Pittman might be the, the last in the House to uh, come around to this idea and was one of the eight voting no. And we are the last lemming on the cliff. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what do we have to live for yeah, anyway? Right. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, moving on to the Senate budget, uh, that passed last week, I believe. Uh, and Colin wrote a little bit and talked a little bit on the last Domecast about how, uh, some of the debate that uh, went on at 3 a.m. and about how they, uh, the Senate passed uh, uh, an amendment that would take some funding away from Democrats' districts and uh, put it into uh, uh, opioid treatment. Uh, there's been some developments on that. Uh, Senator Berger has responded to talk about uh, you know, why they did that. And uh, also today there was some more news out of Governor Coover about uh, uh, funding for opioids. So, Colin, uh, what's the latest on, on that? Yeah, so that story, I, I think when we talked about it uh, last week, we hadn't actually gotten that into the paper yet. Um, and uh, once, once we finally did on Saturday, it kind of uh, blew up nationally. I think Washington Post and some others uh, did their own uh, coverage of the uh, 3 a.m. Uh, budget uh, announcement, and we heard some uh, pretty critical statements from Governor Cooper and others who were uh, upset about the decision to cut funding from uh, education and schools and some of these Democrats' districts. Uh, since then, uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger has come out um, in defense of it, basically saying, uh, you know, this amendment was based on another amendment from uh, a Democrat, Senator Paul Lowe from Winston-Salem, uh, and his amendment floated a couple hours earlier on that late night session uh, would have basically put in funding for Governor Cooper's opioid plan, which is, I think, about 14 or 15 million dollars in total, uh, and did that by limiting the tax income tax cuts in the Senate budget to uh, people basically making less than a million dollars a year. So sort of the Democrats line is uh, we kept the tax cut in there, but we prevented it from going to millionaires and above. Uh, and in the process, freed up funding for opioids. Now, Phil Berger's response to that was to basically say, 
you know, we agree with you that opioids are important, uh, that, you know, Lowe had the right idea there, but we want to do it without, uh, in his words, raising taxes. Of course, this isn't a tax increase because it's not doing a tax decrease. Um, so we found money in other programs. And I think he also made the case that this was not about retaliation for the Democrats. Uh, although I should note that's a difficult case to make because one of the provisions in this doesn't actually free up funding. It's the provision in that amendment that changed which uh, communities benefit from a stipend for teacher assistants who are trying to go back to school, get their teaching license. Uh, that total amount for that did not change in this amendment, but what did change was the counties affected. And so instead of some rural counties represented by uh, African-American senators and Democrats from Northeastern North Carolina, uh, all the counties impacted would be in Republican districts now that would benefit from the TA program. And I guess the total the, of the money that they moved was really a fraction of what Lowe wanted, right? Yeah, the, the total they put into opioids was about one or two million dollars total. And he was going for 18? Yeah, he wanted 15 for sort of a statewide thing. Their program is a pilot program for specific communities. Initially, the Senate budget only had one pilot program in Wilmington. This adds, I think, five or six others. Uh, notably all in Republican districts. So when uh, Governor Roy Cooper on Thursday was uh, bashing this plan in this uh, opioid uh, press conference uh, down in Southeast Raleigh, he basically said, you know, hey, the opioid epidemic is not a Republican or Democrat problem. You know, it's something that goes across party lines and who's affected. And so we shouldn't be uh, limiting the resources we put into the state to specific communities that are represented by Republican senators. A couple other cuts have gotten attention since the budget passed the Senate. Um, so uh, first of all, food stamps. Um, so uh, basically, uh, the Senate wants to uh, change eligibility for food stamps, which is federal money, uh, and uh, wouldn't particularly affect the state budget, right? Um, yeah. So why, do they want, why do they want to do that? Yeah, so this was something that uh, really didn't get much attention when the budget was passed. This was buried on like page 110 or something. and fairly technical language. Uh, so none of the Democrats or the Republicans really gave much explanation for this uh, during the, the budget deliberations. Uh, but afterwards, that popped up. Um, the liberal group uh, NC Policy Watch, I think, was the first to uh, report on this and, and find this provision uh, that would basically change the eligibility requirements in a way that over about 130,000 uh, people currently receiving food stamps would get kicked off of food stamps. And again, it's like you said, it's federal money, so it doesn't save the state anything uh, to do that, but the person responsible for putting that in the budget is uh, Republican Senator Ralph Heiss, who explained that he sees this more as a fairness issue, um, that he's concerned that the way it currently works now, North Carolina put into place, I think sometime around the session, recession, something called categorical eligibility, which basically means if you get some other form of government assistance, uh, you automatically are eligible for food stamps uh, at a higher income level than if you were just applying for food stamps. So his concern was that essentially you have people who may have a bunch of money in the savings account or assets, and that's not showing up in their uh, eligibility for food stamps. So they may be getting food stamps while someone less well off who just has, happens not to be on some other government assistance program is getting denied uh, the ability to, to be on food stamps. And so that's his rationale behind that. Uh, of course, this whole thing is getting uh, pretty significant pushback from Democrats, uh, as well as from the Food Bank of North Carolina, which I spoke to uh, earlier this week that's concerned that's going to put more pressure on them because people who get kicked off the food stamps are going to be showing up at the food bank and wanting to get their uh, meals a, a slightly different way. Uh, this all comes on top of a, a previous effort uh, by Republicans in the legislature, a successful effort a year or so ago, um, 
to reduce the number of counties that, uh, or eliminate all counties that had this uh, exemption from a work requirement where you have to work uh, 20 hours uh, or volunteer or be in school for 20 hours a week in order to, to stay on food stamps if you're in a certain category. Um, that's resulted in thousands of people uh, getting cut from the food stamp rolls in the past year or so. Um, and the food right, banks you got some new data on that. Just yeah, it, it's you know, it, I think it's a smaller number than we were looking at earlier. That just and it's hard to figure out exactly whether everybody's encompassed in these sort of rejected application numbers. But the the month that uh, this went into effect in the uh, seventy seven or so counties that were still uh, eligible to. to not have the work requirement under federal rules, uh, about 5,000 or so in one month were uh, rejected, which is a, up from just a couple of hundred the previous month. So pretty clear that uh, there are folks who were uh, taken off uh, food stamps as a result of not meeting the work requirements that had been reinstated uh, by the legislature uh, without sort of the requirements of the federal government. And something I didn't realize until I read your story is that there's a connection between uh, kids whose families get food stamps and free and reduced lunch. So if their kids kicked off food stamps, then they don't get meals at school. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, and I wasn't 100% clear on, on how direct a correlation that is. Uh, it's been in some of the rhetoric from Roy Cooper and the Democrats that uh, that's how that would go down. My, my understanding is you if you're on food stamps, you pretty much automatically qualify for free or reduced lunch. Um, these kids may be able to still apply potentially, but uh, certainly I think would reduce the number uh, of kids qualifying automatically just as a result of uh, their families being on food stamps. Yeah, I didn't realize how tied together some of these benefits are in these different ways. Um, Lynn, you had written about a couple other budget cuts. Uh, yeah. One, or write, written about one, and are writing about another one. Um, so one is is to local mental health agencies, and right. I guess the Senate says that they uh, really have too much money in the bank, right? Right. Um, there are uh, seven of these regional mental health offices that kind of act like uh, insurance offices. Really, they're called managed care organizations. They get money from public money from. Um, you know, the federal government, state government, and counties, and they are responsible for um, sort of buying mental health services and providing mental health services for for people in the counties they cover. Um, part of the uh, law requires that they build up reserves, and there's also an incentive for them to save money um, because with their savings, they're supposed to be able to improve mental health services in their areas and, and provide extra things. And uh, But they, in the process of, of their operations, they built up a a sizable chunk of money. Um, the Senate says uh, among the seven, they've almost got um, nearly a billion dollars in savings, and legislators want them to start spending that. Will yawns every time I start talking, so I'm going to, I'll cut this short. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just yeah. need my coffee. Yeah, no, 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 it happens, it happens every podcast. I'm calling you out now. Uh, oh, <laughs> how, can, real. how can I make this more interesting, Will? I don't know. Jump in here. Uh, <laughs> She's tired of writing about LMEs. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. I haven't she, even said LME MCO. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm trying to avoid all the jargon. I guess I'm not I'm not doing such a so, good job. So the impact of so, this is yes. a couple Back of these the news. A couple of these facilities uh, wouldn't get built, right? These mental health right, okay. crisis care facilities. Yeah, so um, 
So what uh, the argument is in our area, and we have uh, an office that's called Alliance, is that uh, reducing the money going to these organizations or cutting their funds is going to um, reduce, uh, you know, community health care, that there are plans for some crisis centers in Wake, um, improvements to crisis center in Durham, um, that that just won't happen if if the money gets cut. So, um, you know, the Senate budget writer says, you know, they're looking more into this, into the plans that the local offices have, and um, the House says that they're going through the process, whatever that means. But this would be, you know, the second round of budget cuts um, from this uh, state source of money. Uh, so, um, you, you know, we'll see where it goes. But um, mental health has always been a really difficult uh, issue f- in the state. Um, and, you know, when you talk about you know, cutting funds from these local offices, it immediately sets off alarm bells. And you're also looking into a, another cut that deals with a school that's... Uh, right. There's a popular... Um, uh, enrichment program for high school students called uh, the Governor's School that um, could be in its final year of state money. Um, the Senate budget would uh, stop funding uh, the Governor's School um, after this session and take the money and restart a legislative leadership school um, uh, using most of the money and also uh, provide some education services for students who go through the uh, for the uh, North Carolina School of Science and Math. Um, not quite certain why they want that switch, but uh, one of the um, budget writers said that um, the governor's school could survive in a reduced form because part of the deal with the governor's school is that either students or their districts have to um, pay part of the tuition. They pay um, $500 for the session. So I think that his idea is that with that money, they could operate a smaller version of the governor's school. I almost have to wonder with that if this is another swipe at the governor because the name of the governor's school, even though it's not necessarily run by the governor himself, it has governor's school in the name. And I guess this would be something called the legislative school. So it's like, you know, name for the legislators, legislators again, not by name. But You stole the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say exactly the same thing. It's just part of the ongoing who has the control over everything debate. Pretty, pretty on the nose, though. I mean, as far well, as this is going. It's not the governor's school anymore. It's, the, let's say, the legislature's our school. <laughs> All right. And, uh, you, Craig, you've been following uh, what the governor has been doing, uh, other than uh, uh, losing his name on the governor's school uh, this week. And, uh, it's an uh, ongoing he, struggle. He, he went to D.C. and uh, is, is advocating for hurricane relief and also uh, talking about some of his his priorities. Uh, what did you learn from uh, his uh, his talks there? He did make a little news. He started out the morning going into D.C. on um, what day is this? Thursday. So it must have been Tuesday. Uh, and he uh, met with a uh, group called the Ameri- Center for American Progress, which is a pretty um, – it's kind of a constellation of the big stars in the Democratic Party, the, uh, the liberal – certainly the liberal wing – of the Democratic Party, um, and he was there. It was, it was supposed to be an ideas conference, so he was just kind of recounting 
uh, mostly what we know of the recent political history with his election uh, here. But he also said that he was kind of explaining himself, uh, explaining his decision to sign the bill that was a partial repeal of HB2, for which he took a lot of heat from the left for not holding out for a complete repeal. It was a repeal with some strings attached. So he kind of got up and explained that that's what uh, – that he thought that was the best thing to do. He said we could have, I could have kept pounding my fist on the table and holding my uh, ground for this thing that wasn't going to happen, or we could just move on. And so he thought, uh, he thought uh, just moving on was the best option. But he said uh, to show that I'm going to commit, keep my commitment to the LGBT community, I'm going to be signing an executive order soon that is going to broaden protections for the uh, LGBT community. Uh, he didn't offer any details, and I talked to him briefly later that night as he was driving to the airport. He also didn't have any details other than to say, I promised, you know, when HB2 started that uh, I was going to keep fighting for everything I could uh, along these way, uh, those lines. And so this was something he was seeing as a fulfillment of a promise. Um, Governor McCrory also passed a uh, uh, or enacted an executive order last year when he was in office, which uh, expanded certain protections, sexual, uh, well, now I can't remember exactly what they were, if anybody can help me Yeah, there. I think he, he put in a sexual orientation sexual to orientation. the uh, non-discrimination for state employees and state agencies, not anything in the private sector. And I think, right, and I think actually it was restricted to just those executive branch agencies. Yeah, because I guess he, executive orders only really apply to the, the yeah. agencies he controls, which yeah. are not, you know, agriculture and things that have their own uh, leader. Yeah. And uh, somehow he seemed to broaden it to include the universities, as I recall. But uh, so I don't know what else Cooper can do, but he's uh, got something in the works that sounds like we'll be hearing about. It makes me wonder what kind of re- reception he's getting from uh, from Democrats down there, because he's sort of uh, he's got this this new law that, of course, uh, other Democrats in various cities are um, still uh, responding to with, with travel bans and things like that. And uh, uh, on the other hand, he, you know, Cooper is kind of one of the bright spots for the Democratic Party this last election where they, uh, you know, were uh, defeated in, in so many different uh, places. But, uh, you know, Cooper ended up prevailing. So Yeah. And I think um, that's one of the reasons he was at this particular group in Washington, which uh, is a group that's tied to fundraising and uh, uh, I think has a political action committee of its own. Uh, it was important for him. He he benefited from a lot of national, uh, I guess you could say, liberal money, and that's that's what he's, you know, he's want, he needs. It was important for him to keep that connection open. I think. Yeah, I talked to one of uh, the Washington reporters that was up there, and they were surprised that uh, he was so focused on North Carolina in his speeches. A lot of times, I guess, when you get these governors that are, are looking at uh, making a splash on the national stage, they come up there and they're, they come out swinging on, on a lot of national issues. And apparently Cooper's speech was very much focused on, here's what I'm doing in North Carolina. Okay, bye. Yeah, I don't see him as a, like a rising national star. I don't think he's somebody that's really been discussed, at least not yet anyway, about uh, uh, some other office that, as, as uh, some of them have been. Uh, he was more there just to uh, sort of say, I'm holding the line here in North Carolina. This is, this is what I'm doing. So... He also visited when he was up there. He also visited with the uh, congressional delegation because uh, last week he raised a fuss over the fact that he's just found out that uh, for this latest round of disaster relief funding from the, from uh, Hurricane Matthew, that uh, he wasn't going to get anything near what he says we need. I think he said we the state in this next round needed something in excess of nine hundred million dollars, and what came out of the. Pro- 
proposal from the Trump administration was uh, $6 million. So uh, they're saying this isn't, that's not going to work. So they went up there. He, I asked him if this was kind of a, a, a pep rally or if it was a sort of a strategic session. He said it was strategic. They all talked about specifically who should hunt down which official in the administration over at HUD and who should talk to who and try to, try to pull some strings for the next uh, appropriations, which I think will be in September. And I guess that so the congressional delegation, uh, I guess, didn't get that done during the last round. I don't know if that was up to Congress or if it was so totally uh, up to the Trump administration. It's not um, totally. Uh, there's some amount of money that can be spent without congressional approval, but I think a big chunk of it needs that. So it was, I guess, a, the, the 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 culprit, if that's the right word, is the you know leadership in the uh, in Congress. Okay, right. Uh, well, we'll stay tuned on that. Um, before we uh, break and talk about headline of the week, Will, um, we've got a new partnership uh, with ABC 11 that uh, you should talk about. Um, PolitiFact is going to be uh, on the air, on the airwaves, and you're going to be talking about uh, your fact checks that you're doing. Yeah, we just started this uh, last week. Uh, if you were watching the nightly news on Wednesday, uh, you might have seen me on TV talking about our last fact check on uh, health care. Um, Checking Representative uh, Ted Budd from here in North Carolina talking about the American Health Care Act and whether or not premiums are going to go up or down. Uh, it's pretty complicated. Uh, it was an interesting one to. Uh, You're going to go up, up then down. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's about the all you had version, time to yeah. say on the air, actually. You get about a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, there have been talks about, you know, whether or not we want to keep it at a minute, make it a little bit longer, change the format. Obviously, it's just beginning. Um, but the plan for now is once or twice a week, have me on talking about different fact checks uh, we're working on. The uh, The next one I'm working on, uh, we haven't issued a formal ruling on it yet. The, uh, the, the Grand Commission of Fact Checkers hasn't uh, laid down the hammer, but we're looking into a claim about voter fraud and uh, people who are, you know, appear to be 110, 120 years old, but are somehow still casting votes in North Carolina. So we've been digging into that. Um, that'll be a fun one coming up um, at the end of this week. So everyone just stay tuned to that on the internet and in the paper and now on TV. Yeah. Conquering all medias. Also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that's probably enough uh, for now. We'll take a quick break and come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Did you know that North Carolina judges used to ride on horseback across the state to deliver justice? Today, there are more than 1,000 judicial representatives in our state. And through the NCAOC Speakers Bureau, you can request to have a representative speak at your event. Representatives are ready to inform your community about the importance of the North Carolina judicial system, and their visits are completely free. We can't promise they'll show up on a horse, though. Visit celebrate.ncourts.org to request a speaker for your event. And now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we decide who the most influential or interesting person, place, or thing in uh, this week's news is. Uh, Will, who's your Headliner of the Week? Um, I'm going to go for someone who's been kind of overshadowed in national politics this week with some of the other craziness that's been happening in D.C., and that is uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts. On I think it was on Monday, he uh, declined to take up the North Carolina voter ID case. That was the one that was famously 
uh, overturned by a federal appeals court that said it uh, targeted African-American voters with, I believe the phrase was almost surgical precision, um, essentially that this law was enacted with uh, racial intent and was therefore unconstitutional. Uh, Roberts said the Supreme Court's not going to be taking up, so the uh, that lower court standing about discrimination will stand. Uh, liberals immediately took it as a, a huge victory for uh, voting rights here in North Carolina, but something that kind of got overlooked is that Roberts didn't necessarily say the Supreme Court will never look at this. He mostly just talked about the uh, the squabbles between the governor and the legislature over who gets to actually represent the state and hire the lawyers and decide what our arguments are going to be, and basically just kind of told them, you know, hey guys, figure this out amongst yourselves and, you know, maybe you'll have a shot at bringing it back later. That at least seemed to be the implication that a lot of people were getting from it. Yeah, and in fact, he explicitly said that this is not a ruling on the merits of the, the case, and uh, Republicans were quick to come back and say, uh, we're going to uh, look at passing a new version of voter ID. So. Uh, so we will hear about this one again, and the court may end up taking up uh, another, another state's voter ID case anyway. So um, have a feeling we'll be back at this one. Um, so Chief Justice John Roberts in the hat for Headliner of the Week. Uh, Colin, who's your Headliner of the Week? I am going with uh, State Senator, former State Senator Fletcher Hartzell, uh, who was sentenced on Tuesday to eight months in prison uh, on some federal charges uh, about campaign finance violations, basically that he'd used uh, $210,000 from his campaign accounts for personal expenses, things like uh, tickets to see Jersey Boys, a trip with the handbell choir, some haircuts, some other uh, vacations and family things. So he's uh, reporting to federal prison on July 17th, uh, the latest in a line of uh, former state legislators who have uh, gotten on the wrong side of law and uh, ended up in jail. So Fletcher Hartzell is uh, my pick this week. Okay, former Senator Fletcher Hartzell uh, sentenced. Lynn, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to take uh, legislators who proposed uh, raise the age legislation, uh, both uh, present and past. Um, this idea has been around for a really long time. Um, and never received too much traction, but it seems uh, now that we're, you know, last in the nation, um, it might actually move this year. So I'll take uh, McGrady Hall, who was the other main sponsor, um, and some of the previous sponsors. I think David Lewis was David on Lewis, it. David uh, Lewis, uh, and people no, long, no longer in the legislature, uh, prominently uh, Marilyn Avila. Um, who uh, pushed on this for years. Okay. Right. Sponsors of Raise the Age legislation uh, to move jurisdiction over juveniles into uh, into juvenile court, 16 and 17-year-olds into juvenile court. Finally getting some traction. Uh, in the hat for headliner of the week, Craig, who's your headliner of the week? Uh, an asterisk to uh, Collins' nomination of Fletcher Hartzell, it just occurred to me, is that Stephen LaRoque, a former uh, state representative, just was released from prison. Uh, he represented Kinston, went to prison for uh, violations uh, <clears throat> involving how he used money, federal uh, kind of business startup money. In I guess the areas. VIP suite in prison is uh, yeah, you, now. So. You rotate them in and out. So. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And but my uh, since you asked, my uh, nomination is uh, is actually <laughs> is not Larue. Is not, not Stephen no. Larue. Well, so, it's a, this that was is just a, my uh, asterisk. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm just hogging the whole show. Surprise! I sat uh, on my hands for the first 45 minutes. So no, um, no, I was going to go with uh, with Senator Tom Tillis because he. Uh, 
He startled everybody, worried everybody. Uh, uh, yesterday morning, he uh, was part was in a, a charity run in Washington D.C., where it's uh, now starting to get warm and humid. I understand, and he uh, collapsed about two and a half miles into the run, uh, and uh, apparently lost consciousness. Paramedics came, took him away. There was all sorts of. Uh, uh, scuttlebutt about what what he had had actually happened to him. It seems like he was probably just dehydrated, and um, I, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but he felt uh, his staff scrambled to make sure we all understood that he was okay. They he posted a video on Twitter from the hospital, and then uh, you know he's still in his running clothes, and then later uh, in the evening uh, in his suit from the uh, Senate office building, he. Uh, said look I'm still up and up and running everything's fine sorry that I slowed down these other runners screwed up their times but I'm fine now so Tom Tillis for giving us a scare okay Senator Tom Tillis kind of a scary moment uh, and then uh, glad to see that he's uh, doing fine so uh, we've got uh, Chief Justice John Roberts uh, former Senator Fletcher Hartzell the state legislators who sponsored raise the age legislation and uh, Senator Tom Tillis uh, I'm going to go with Tillis. Uh, we're all glad to hear that he is uh, doing better and hope it stays that way. Uh, and uh, I guess maybe he needs to lay off the races for a few days at least. Um, uh, running in 90-degree heat in Washington, D.C. seems like a terrible idea. And certainly if you're not properly hydrated, even more terrible idea. Yeah. Uh, so we'll go with Senator Tom Tillis as this week's headliner of the week. Uh, thanks for listening to Domecast and catch us next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.